like to have us turn to our text for this morning. Uh, actually, our texts, plural. We're going to be looking at two of them. First, Romans 15, verse 13, which is uh, sort of the theme text that we're using this entire series. That's on page 922, if you're following along in the Bibles in your pews. And then you can also find your way to Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. That's on page 589. And we're using these two texts throughout the season of Advent. Romans, like I said, each week, and then a different text from the prophet Isaiah each week as well uh, to sort of hone in on the theme and, uh, and the waiting that we do during the season of Advent. And so we start first with Romans 15, verse 13. The Apostle Paul writes this to the church in Rome as well as to us as the church today. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then flipping to Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7, the prophet writes, But now this is what the Lord says, He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cushion Seba in your stead, because you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you. I give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, all who are called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, like we said last week, the season of Advent is a season of waiting. It's a season of waiting on the Lord, a season of waiting for Christ our Savior, and a season of waiting for all that God will do as he works to redeem and restore his world. And like we talked about last week, that waiting has two parts. First, in Advent, we commemorate the waiting that God's people, the Israelites, did for centuries as they waited for God to send them a Savior. But as people of that Savior, Jesus Christ, as Christians today, our waiting during Advent is more than just commemorative. That's because while the Israelites waited for Christ's first coming, we wait for his second. We wait for him to come back. We wait for him to come again. We wait for him to come and bring to fulfillment all that he began to do when he was first here. And as such, Advent forms a couple historic Christian values or qualities in us. First, like we talked about last week, Advent makes us people of hope. It makes us people who know deep down inside that everything that we believe will someday come true. That's the Christian version of hope. It's not just a wish or a preference. It's a deep-seated understanding and confidence that what we believe will someday happen. Second, Advent makes us people of love. Third, it makes us people of joy 
And fourth and finally, it makes us people of peace. And so very simply, that's what we are looking at in this Advent season here at Ivanrest Church. We are talking about those four historic Christian values. We are talking about hope, love, joy, and peace, and how it is that we as people who are waiting for our Savior are formed into people of hope, love, joy, and peace. And so we continue this morning with the second of those. We continue with love. Now, the first thing that we need to understand as we explore that Advent value of love this morning is that the Bible defines love differently from how we do in our culture today. This is something uh, we've talked about a number of times before, but the Bible doesn't define love in our all you need is love, love me, love me, say that you love me, I'll love you as long as it's convenient or easy or good for me way of defining love these days. And so the Bible's definition of love is fuller, deeper, and more meaningful than that. That's because, quite simply, the Bible's definition of love is modeled on God's definition for love. And that's the kind of love we see here in our passage this morning, too. The Hebrew word for love here is ahava. God is speaking to his people, Judah, in this passage. And in verse 4, he says, Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, because I ahava you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Ahava literally means love or affection. And it refers to the kind of care or commitment that people in close relationships with each other have for one another. Uh, For instance, ahava is the kind of love that the Bible uses to talk about marriage, the kind of love that exists between a husband and a wife. It's the word that the Bible uses to talk about the kind of love that parents have for their children as well. And it's the kind of love the Bible uses to talk about other things like close friendships or the love that people might have for leaders or their country or the love and care that we show towards those who are in need. In short, Ahava describes a committed, faithful, enduring love. I probably, one of my favorite children's Bibles is the Jesus Storybook Bible, and I love the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones describes that kind of love in that children's Bible. She says that God offers us a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That is Ahava, and that's the kind of love that God extends to us as his people, too. Now, there are many places we could go in the Bible— to get a picture or a description of that, but this passage is one of them. The truth is, this passage puts God's love on display almost like a jeweler putting a diamond on display in a showcase. You know how jewelers do that, right? They'll put it on a turntable under a row of lights so that it slowly turns, and you can see it in all its glory from all these different angles and aspects. That's what this passage does with God's love. It puts it on display so that we can see it from different perspectives, see it in all its beauty, see it in all its glory. And so what do we see here? when we examine the kind of love that this passage talks about. Four things, four aspects or facets of God's love. First, in this passage, we see that God's love is protective. He uses his love to protect or safeguard those he cares for. Second, we see that God's love is personal. 
His love is intimate, close, and deeply familiar with those that he loves. Third, we see that God's love is redemptive. It's salvific. It's willing to do whatever it takes to redeem and restore and save those that God loves. And fourth and finally, we see God's love is wide. It's broad. It's big. It's much more far-reaching than we often think. That's what this passage shows us. God's love is protective, it's personal, it's redemptive, and wide. And to get a better understanding of each of those, let's take each one in turn. First, God's love is protective. In the first two verses of this passage, God says to his people, Judah, but now this is what the Lord says, he who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. What God is basically saying to his people there is that they are safe. He's saying that he will protect them. He will keep them from harm. No matter what happens, no matter what comes along, no matter what threatens or seeks to put them in danger, God will be with them. He will defend them. He will preserve them. He will watch over them no matter what. As John Goldengay writes in his commentary here, God doesn't promise that fire or water won't threaten his people, but he does promise that they won't be consumed by the fire or overwhelmed by the water. Fire and water have been images of God's judgment in earlier chapters in Isaiah, which adds an extra level of reassurance to the promise. Calamity may come again, but God will never let his people be consumed or overwhelmed. Instead, he will be there with them. He will care for them. He will safeguard them. His love is protective. That leads us to the second thing we see here, though, which is that God's love is personal. Again, in verse 1, we read, But now this is what the Lord says, He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. A little later, he continues, For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Biblical scholar Alec Motyer highlights the possessive pronouns there. In his commentary on this passage, he says that despite Judah's sin, God still refers to himself as your God. He belongs to them. John Oswald picks up on that in his commentary, too. He writes, the key to all of this is the personal relationship of God to his people. The recurrence of the pronouns I and you throughout this passage is striking. Twice God says, I am or will be with you. He identifies himself by relation to his people, calling himself the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. The creator of the universe deems to give himself to his people as their personal possession because he loves them because they are precious to him. What Oswald is saying there is that God's relationship with his people is so personal that it's almost as if he's giving himself to them like a gift or a present. Just think about that for a moment. Think about a gift or a present that you've received that meant a lot to you. What was it that, that made it meaningful or something that you enjoyed? Often it's not the cost, right? 
It's not the size. It's not how well-wrapped it is. No, often the gifts that are the most meaningful to us are the gifts that are the most personal. The gifts that tell us that the person who has given them to us knows us, that they understand us, that they love us. I remember a couple years ago when my wife Sarah gave me a, a gift like that. Uh, it was a keychain version of the Lego movie character Emmett. Now that probably doesn't sound like much uh, to all of you, but to me it, it meant a lot. You see, Sarah knew that I loved the Lego movie, and I did. I saw it probably three or four times in theaters. I own it on DVD, and I would probably still tell you it's one of the best movies ever made. Um, the first one, not all the others. <laughs> And the reason Sarah knew that I loved the Lego movie was because I made her go and see it with me on our second date. And then after every single joke, looked over at her with anticipation on my face to see if she was laughing as hard as I was, which she wasn't. And yet that still worked. She kept dating me. We got married. So she knew that I loved that movie. And so she got me that keychain. And it was probably the cheapest gift that she got me that Christmas. Right? It was the smallest, probably cost her the least amount of money of all the things that she gave me that year. And yet it was my favorite. It was my favorite present because it was the present that meant the most to me. And it was the present that meant the most to me, not because of its cost or its size or its wrapping or anything else, but because it told me that the person I loved knew me. It told me that she loved me too. It told me that she cared. And that's what God is doing with his people here, too. That's what his love for them looks like. It's personal, and he gives himself to them in it. Oswald reflects on this, and he says, This is cause for wonder. Why would the one who is beyond the stars even pay any attention to rebel beings on this small planet? And that is a great question. Why would the God of the universe pay attention to small creatures who he made who turned away from him? But Oswald says he does. And although these particular people have broken their covenant with him time and again, he will keep his side of the bargain. In other words, despite their sin, God assures Judah that they are still his people. He is still their God. And he loves them with a particular, focused, personal love. And that brings us to the third aspect of God's love. His love is protective, it's personal, and it's also redemptive. In verse 1, God says, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I, I have summoned you by name, and you are mine. And then twice in this passage, God talks about exchanging others for Judah. In verse 3, he says, I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. And then in verse 4, he says, Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Now, it's important to understand that by this point in the book, by, by the time we get to chapter 43, God is speaking to exiles here. Okay, like we talked about last week, the first half of Isaiah contains warnings and judgment for God's people, Israel and Judah, meant to convict them of their sin and waywardness. The first half of, of Isaiah serves as a warning to call them to repentance so they can avoid the coming disaster. Unfortunately, though, Israel and Judah resisted that repentance. 
And rather than humble themselves before the Lord, they persisted in their idolatry and disobedience against him. And so as a result, God allowed them to be invaded and conquered and ultimately exiled from their land. That happened for Israel in 722 BCE when they were conquered and then scattered throughout the Assyrian Empire. And then Judah was conquered in 586 BCE and exiled to Babylon. And yet, God tells them here that he will ransom them. He will exchange nations for them. He will redeem them. Now that word, redeem, redemption, that's a word we're pretty familiar with as Christians, right? After all, that's one of the terms that we use to talk about our salvation. We say that we have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, that we have redemption in him, right? That's one of the ways that we describe our salvation. And yet, what does that word really mean? It actually wasn't originally a religious term. That's because originally redeem, redemption, was a legal term. It was reserved for the courtroom. To redeem someone meant that you were buying their freedom. Often used in the context of slavery or prison, redemption meant that someone had paid a price so that you could go free. One of the most famous examples of this, at least in our culture, is the scene in uh, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, right? Where the thief Jean Valjean gets caught stealing from a bishop his silver candlesticks, and then the bishop says, no, I gave it to him. And then after the police leave, the bishop looks at Valjean and says, with this silver, I have purchased your soul for God. That's redemption buying someone's freedom at a cost to yourself. And so with that in mind, what does it mean that God has redeemed his people? It means that God has paid a price for them. It means that he has ransomed them. It means that he has made an exchange for them. It means, as God says here, that he has given others up so that he can have them. In other words, God tells his people that he has redeemed them in the literal sense of the word. That's what he's saying here. Despite their rebellion, their disobedience, their willful and wrongful sin against them, God has paid a price so that he can have his people back. As Oswald puts it, what is God to do after the looting and plundering have become fact? The shift in tone from chapter 42 to 43 is breathtaking. What God will now do is grace. Interestingly, there is nothing the Judeans have to do in advance for this grace to become available to them. They do not have to repent or promise to change their ways. God simply declares that he has redeemed them. It is a completed fact. God's love is redemptive. And finally, it's also wide. At the end of this passage in verses 5 through 7, God says, Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now, in the context of this passage, God is specifically talking about the Jewish people here. He's saying that wherever they are, wherever they've wound up, wherever they've been scattered in their exile, he is going to bring them back. He is going to bring them home. He is going to gather them together and restore them to their land. And eventually, that came true. 
In 538 BCE, Cyrus, the Persian ruler, who by that time had taken over Babylon, did exactly that. He allowed the Jewish people to return to Jerusalem and their homeland. He allowed them to go back and rebuild their city and their towns and to reside there again. And so God fulfilled this promise. In his love, he reached across borders, across mountains and valleys, across rivers and wastelands to redeem his people and bring them back to him. That's how wide God's love is. And yet eventually, he went even bigger than that. You see, God's love would eventually expand beyond just Israel. It would eventually expand beyond just Judah, just God's Old Testament people. That's because as pretty much every commentator I read on this passage points out, these last few verses here foreshadow an even bigger widening of God's love. That's because these verses foreshadow how God would eventually open the doors of his love beyond Israel and Judah to the rest of the world, too. And just like fulfilling his promise to bring Israel and Judah home, that's exactly what he eventually did. That's because through his son, Jesus Christ, God did broaden his love. He did Expand it. He did make it deeper and wider and bigger. In fact, through Christ, God made his love available to all who might accept it. Jesus himself actually talks about that in John chapter 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, though, that are not of this sheep pen. And I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. What Jesus is saying there is that through him, not just Israel, not just Judah, but all people have become recipients of God's love. All who accept Jesus Christ. And it's that same protective, personal, redemptive, and wide love that we see here in this passage. That's the love that God has given to us. And it's the love that we are called to give to others, too. You see, and we've We've talked about this before, but the same way that God's love wasn't just for Israel and Judah in the Old Testament, his love isn't just for us as Christians today either. You see, God's love isn't something that we are supposed to as Christians receive and then just hold on to tightly. It's not something that he gives to us so that we can grasp it and grip it and keep it to ourselves. Instead, God offers his love to us so that we then can offer it to others. The image I've actually used for this uh, before is of a container being sort of filled up, right? It's as if God is pouring his love into us, pouring his love into us, pouring his love into us, but not just to fill us up to the brim and then stop. He keeps going. He keeps pouring so that we overflow, so that we spill and splash his love around us. That's what we are called to do as Christians to be conduits of God's love so that it can flow into us and then through us to others. Unfortunately, we don't always do that as well as we would like, do we? For instance, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently, 
A few years ago, there was a study about what non-believers, at least here in North America, think when they hear the word Christian, the first few things that come to mind. You want to know what their top three responses were? When non-Christians were asked what their perception was of Christians, what they think about when they hear about Christians, the top three answers that they gave were anti-homosexual, judgmental, and hypocritical. That's what we've become known for in our culture. Not our love, not our generosity, not our grace and mercy and kindness, but rather our judgment, our hypocrisy, and our opposition to homosexuality. Now, we can, debate, we can debate whether or not that's fair or accurate. I would say that to some extent it is, and to some extent it isn't. But either way, that's what we've become known for. And that should cause us to pause. It should cause us to pause and reflect. And it should cause us to pause and reflect and ask ourselves, is that what we want to be known for? Is that who we truly are? And if not, what are we going to do to change that? Are we indeed loving enough towards others? Or do they just know us for what we are against? Are we gracious enough? Are we kind enough? In short, are we doing a good enough job of spreading and splashing and spilling the love that God has offered to us to others? Because we need to. Again, God's love is protective. It's personal. It's redemptive. And it's wide. And as his people, ours should be too. We ought to reflect the love that we have received. Which brings us to the gospel this morning. You know, God says kind of a funny thing in this passage. He tells his people, Judah, that he will exchange nations for them. That's how he says that he's going to bring about their work of redemption. He says he'll trade places like Egypt, Cush, and Seba for them so that he can ransom them back to himself. But eventually God would trade something else for his people. Eventually, he would trade someone else. That's because rather than trading nations to redeem and ransom his people, eventually God would trade his son. That's what we believe, right? That's the reason we celebrate this time of year. That's what we anticipate in Advent. That's what we commemorate. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to earth. He came here to live among us, to teach us, to show us what it looks like to live in relationship with his Father. Most importantly, he came to die for us and rise for us. And in that act, that act of sacrifice, that exchange, he took away our sins, redeemed us for his Father, and made it possible for us to love and live in relationship with him again. That's what God's love looks like. It's protective, personal, redemptive, and wide. And by his grace, that's what our love looks like too. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, you love us 
like no other. In, in the midst of even, and in spite of our sin and rebellion against you, you love us. You love us with a love that protects, that is personal, that redeems, and that is wide and broad and big. And as people who carry the good news of the gospel that you have given us through your son, Jesus Christ, help us to love like that. Help us to love others so that we can draw them into your love, so that you can transform them through your love as well, just as you have with us. Thank you for your grace, and thank you for the Savior that you have given us, the one that we waited for, and that we wait to see.